just elevating the stereotype and not elevating the reality. And you say to yourself, well, what do I do about that? And the best thing you can do about it is own it. You know, it's own it as your own thing. And Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachia. All right, Neil, here we are back again. Appalachia Meets World, another episode. We've made it. Yeah, man, this, at this point, I'm afraid too many people are uh, getting to know too much about Appalachia, man. Maybe too much about us. Things are looking up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you could ever know too much about Appalachia. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I think I guess I think our guest tonight will speak about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, I hope so, man. I'm looking forward to it. I know, I know, uh, I haven't got a chance to spend very much time with Yancey, but uh, I know you've known him for a while, so I'm looking, I'm looking forward to it probably more than any anybody. We'll we'll get to that, but one question I wanted to ask you before we get to that: Where are you from? Come on, man. You know, you know, I'm from the county, Laurel County, county down here in Kentucky. You got any news for me? Any uh, Appalachian news? I got a little bit, but I'll let you go first. Yeah, you know, I, I was uh, I was gonna defer to you. You know, I kind of been out of the county for for a couple of days, so uh, vacation, right? Yeah, just kind of getting back into swing of things. So uh, it was kind of a quiet week for uh, for me, anyway. Uh, you need a quiet week every now and then. Yeah, I I, uh, I was gonna geek out a little bit. Uh, <laughs> the, the geek in me. That's that's pretty common for you nowadays. I was going to talk about, uh, not really talk about, but just mention that the Appalachian Regional Commission just came out with their chart book. I don't know what they refer to as the chart book, but it's really the kind of the data overview of of Appalachia and the numbers uh, that we all tend to talk about or or splash all over the headlines because they're usually not too good. So anyway, it just just came out and and it. it really dives into rural Appalachia versus rural America. So not only does it compare Appalachia to urban, but it also compares it to the rest of rural America. And our, our numbers are, are lagging in both behind both. But what I didn't realize w- was that a- as the way the ARC defines it, that there's only 107 of the 420 ca- counties in Appalachia, only 107 of them are considered rural. That's pretty shocking. I, I'd say only a quarter are all 107 in Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's only like 50, 50, 55 Appalachian counties in Kentucky, maybe. Huh. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I just found that inter- interesting. And again, Appalachia's lagging in broadband access and population health, uh, some of the key indicators. And this was prior to COVID 19. So we're lagging behind in those areas. and and uh, this organization paid some money to, to get these numbers when they could have just called me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you want to geek out, man. Just ask me those questions. Well, that's, that's yeah, that's, we're that's, lagging behind. That's kind of my point. I mean, the numbers are the numbers. Yes, we are. But, you, you know, we, we like we tend to always lag behind, especially in among urban areas, but even among the rest of rural America. But, you know, day to day living in Appalachia, you don't see these numbers. I mean, yes, they will drive policy and they'll do things that they're supposed to do. But when we're living day to day, especially in Appalachia, like it's hard to feel these numbers. You know what I mean? 
I do. Just numbers uh, I don't, on the page. I don't feel those. Yeah, they're just numbers on a page. You talk about lagging in broadband service. I mean, my internet works better than yours. <laughs> That's a good I don't feel those. I don't feel those numbers. That's kind of all I had. Like, like I said, I, I don't really want to geek out too much on here. Uh, I think the fun police has left the building after that last episode. <laughs> yeah, for real. We definitely have gotten off our soapbox, and we want to get back to having. A little- I won't. I won't sit in the waiting room, though. I just tell you, I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not going to. I won't do it. I don't know if I'll go into a public library again. <laughs> no, no, all the public libraries out there. I don't know. That's really all I had tonight. I don't know if you have anything else, but maybe if not, we could just go ahead and and get into our first guest. Yeah, man, oh, let's man. do it. Let's do it. All right, tonight on the episode, we have Yancey Burns. He is a graduate of the George Washington University Documentary Film Center. He is a up and coming documentarian. That's the right word, Yancey, right? It works, bud, it works. We'll take documentarian, documentary filmmaker, bon vivant, anything you want to use, bud, I'm about it. All of the above. At the GW Film Center, he wrote and directed the award-winning documentary short, One Fall. Aside from that, he's also a recovering attorney. I can say that, right, Yancey? That is correct. That is correct. Where he practiced law in, in the District of Columbia. He has degrees from West Virginia University and the District of Columbia David A. Clark School of Law. He also owns and manages his family farm, beef, 100% grass-fed beef farm in Lincoln County, West Virginia. And he is pursuing a master's in strategic communications also from GW. So Yancey, thanks for, thanks for being on the episode tonight. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, bud. Like I, I was telling you before, man, I, I, I really do love, I've been loving the pod. I've been listening to it. I appreciate anybody who's making an effort to gas up Appalachia, and that is exactly what y'all are doing. And Appalachia is a place and a people that deserve to be gassed up. So thank you all for what you're doing. Definitely. We appreciate it. I I, uh, I wanted to say the reason why we wanted to have you on the show, obviously because of the work you're doing in filmmaking, I know you have some pre-production going on. Also, you kind of have your foot in DC, Washington, D.C., in, in the urban big city, but also back in West Virginia, where, where your roots are. And so I wanted to start off first by asking you an, an important question. Like we always ask all our guests, Neil and I, like most Appalachians, big on tradition. Our family's big on tradition. Uh, during the holidays, we have big spread of appetizers. So I wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or holiday dish? No, oh, I, was, I was looking forward to this, old buddy. So I thought about it, and I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you my classic, and I'm gonna give you my modern. So my classic is what Mama put out at every holiday, and you knew it was a, you knew it was a good time to be had if they came out, and that is Miracle Whip deviled eggs. Oh, Got mayonnaise deviled eggs, Miracle Whip deviled eggs. First deviled egg answer. Oh, can't go wrong. <laughs> I could eat a dozen right now. Oh, I love it. I mean, that meme that's like, oh, would you like 12 hard-boiled eggs? Of course not. Would you like 24 <laughs> eggs sliced in half, mixed with mustard and Miracle Whip? Yes, please. So, yeah, that's, that's my classic one for sure is deviled eggs because they, they, I agree, king of all, all appetizers. They're hard to beat. And then for my modern one, I'm going to go with the, uh, the one I see popping up these days, the buffalo chicken dip. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. I think it's a, it's a wild advancement in buffalo chicken technology. And I think the fact that we can now dip it is a good thing. 
real I am a fan of that. Do you use the crock pot when you make it? I try to get invited places where somebody will make it for me if oh, I can, nice. if all together possible. And on that note, I'll give a shout out to Brian and Amber Vance. Uh, Brian, <laughs> Brian runs the internet company in the town I'm from, Hamlin. And so when we play fantasy football or fantasy baseball or basketball or whatever, when we have a draft, we always do it at Brian's house because he gets the best internet in all of Lincoln County. <laughs> so shout out to Brian and his wife for having great internet and always putting out buffalo chicken dip. Yancey, just, just to start it off, you want to tell a little bit about uh, where you're from, where you grew up? Sure thing. Yeah, I, I, happy to talk about it. I, I'm from Lincoln County, West Virginia, named after the great emancipator, uh, in my opinion, the best county in all of West Virginia. Uh, I grew up in a uh, in, in a town called Hamlin, but I didn't grow up in town. I grew up out in the, in the country at a place called Coon Creek, and I grew up on Burns Farm. And it's it, to me, it's, it's the best place I could have ever been raised. I, my, my folks actually... Uh, this is a fun fact about me. I'm not a native West Virginian. Um, I was raised in West Virginia. I, I moved there as fast as I humanly possibly could. We got there when I was about seven months old, but I'm actually a native Angelino. My parents were living in, uh, in Los Angeles when I was born. Wow. And, uh, my dad was the principal at Watts elementary and, uh, and, uh, he actually took a job to come back and be the principal at Fez elementary. And I imagine there's not a lot of differences between Watts Elementary and Fez Elementary, even though Watts is in obviously Southern California <laughs> and Fez is way deep up, up, up Mud River. You say that yeah. jokingly, but there probably is some similarities there, right? Oh, I definitely think there's some similarities. I, I, I think too, too often we are divided by color lines or lines of sexuality or lines of whatever, lines of politics. When all the while class unites us for the most part. I mean, poor folks is poor folks is poor folks. And I, you know, that's, that's what it is. And I, I found that everywhere I've lived. I find it living here in DC that, that the poor folks here in DC are going through the same hardships and the same problems that most of the poor folks I know in West Virginia are going through. And that being broke is just an American condition. It's not a, it's not a condition of, of where you come from or the place you're living. It's, it's just a condition. And I, I'd love it if we could recognize that a little more. I think we'd be a little better off if we did. I uh, wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned now you're living in D.C. I mentioned it. What what made you decide to move away from West Virginia to go to the big city? I imagine if you want to tell a bit of background, but it might have been a culture shock for you. I don't know. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, I <laughs> it's always a culture shock when, when you grow up in a – I mean, I, I grew up in a community where I graduated high school with 47 kids. So, so yeah, if, if you're going to go somewhere else, and it's public school, Hamlin High School, go Bobcats, Bobcats forever, hashtag Bobcats forever. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I knew after high school that I was, I was going to go to college, and I, I was blessed to, to come from a, from a family of educators who, who encouraged me to, to go to higher education. And so I was lucky enough to fulfill the West Virginia dream and go to West Virginia University to go to Morgantown and have the Morgantown experience, which – I'm not gonna lie, I can't be beat. I, I, I don't know where you all went to undergrad, but there is no undergrad like West Virginia University. People say it's all about burning couches, but that is a misnomer. It's about burning everything and burning <laughs> down anything you want to burn down. West well, Virginia just University couches, can't be right? stopped. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I got I got to WVU, and I like I said, I, I I was very blessed to just to be there at WVU, just to have just gotten that opportunity. And, and while I was there, I had the fortune of having a professor, uh, Felissa Mitchell, who was in the, the School of Journalism there. And, and she she kind of hit me to the fact that, you know, I could study abroad while I was there and that I could apply for free financial aid to study abroad because I was already qualifying for financial aid to go to, to WVU. And she was like, you know, you should, you should check this out. And, and so I, I took advantage of it and I was able to spend a year in Cairo, Egypt, and I was able to spend uh, a semester in the Virgin Islands. And it got me out and about. And after that, I knew 
I had to see more of the world, and that's what brought me to D.C. Because I, I did, <laughs> after undergrad, I, I decided, I tell people all this time, uh, this all the time, but I mean, the dream of every poor parent, whether they are from Appalachia or they are an immigrant or they are whatever, the dream of every poor parent is for their kids to either be a doctor or a lawyer. So as soon as I finished undergrad, I applied for law school and I got in and I decided to do it. And I came here to D.C. to do it. Oh, my thunder. I was going to ask why, why law school. but <laughs> Not for the fun of it. I'm not going to lie to you. And I, I, I quickly learned that when I started practicing. It, it is definitely not for the fun of it. It is, it is not for the faint of heart. But it's definitely an experience that I'm thankful for. And I, I do realize and think, I, like I was saying, I come from a family of educators. I'm so lucky that I was raised by my mama who was a teacher and a guidance counselor. And I was raised by, by my dad, who was also a teacher. And, and they just instilled in me the power of education and how education can, can help you to rise, can help you to rise anywhere you want to go. And it, it, it actually made me think that in Appalachia, and I think in a lot of the country, and, and I say the country as, as country, country in America, you know, people are always like, you know, don't get above your raisins. I don't think that's the way they feel in urban America. You know what I mean? Urban urban American parents are encouraging their kids to get above their raisins. Yeah, right. Yet for some reason, we're being told don't get above your raisins. Kind of to that point, you know, obviously Appalachia gets stereotyped quite a bit and, and a lot of it is first recognized by our accents. But when you when you first moved to DC, when you first started working there, even after law school, were you treated any differently? because of where you're from, because of your accent? Do you think it was a hindrance for you? Or, or do you think that stereotype, people, do you think people were stereotyping you? Oh yeah, but I, I think everybody's always profiling. And if you think they're not, you're you're kind of oblivious to the way the world works. So, so yeah, folks are always profiling. For my accent, I mean, I'll say this. I mean, I, I've been code switching for so long. I mean, I'm glad that code switching is a term that has made it kind of into the zeitgeist at this point, because I think a lot of people do it. Yeah, when you're from deep in Appalachia, I mean, I was raised by my mom and papa, and my papa, Ed, he sounded like he'd been on Burns Farm since 1847, since it was founded, and, and that he was he was carrying the dialect with him that came to the shores from somewhere in Scotland and Ireland, because he his was thick and deep. And I, But my grandmother, on the other hand, like I said, was, was a teacher and a guidance counselor, and and she was pretty serious about the King's English. So I, you know, I, I was always kind of going between those two people. And then when you get to even Morgantown, I mean, one of the things that I thought was wild when I got to OVU is that the majority of the student population at OVU is not from West Virginia. It is a, it's about, it runs about 30% on a good year is actually from West Virginia. And that's a real good year. So when you get to OVU, it's not like you're amongst a bunch of West Virginians who are, who are accepting you as a fellow West Virginian. You're amongst a bunch of kids from Jersey and Pennsylvania. Yeah. And so even there, you have to be cognizant of your accent. So it was, it was well before D.C. that I started being cognizant of it. But I will say this. I mean, I, I'm sure it helps that I, I, I'm a white dude and, and it, folks find it charming. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I'm lucky that I'm a, a highly educated white dude who, who can speak that way because yeah, I know some folks, it's a hindrance for them because people just assume you're stupid. And I, I guess I kind of like that. Like, I, I like that underdog mentality. I, I don't ever want to go into a room where people assume I'm really smart because I sure don't want to let them down. So I'd, I'd much rather they assume they assume less and, and let me let me surprise them. Well, uh, on the flip side of that, when you go back to West Virginia, like you do, you know, to manage your farm, you ever get treated differently because you've been in the big city? So I have the advantage. I mean, I... I don't spend long times away from the farm. Uh, you know, during the pandemic this past year and a half was the longest I ever spent away from the farm. And that was a good solid year without going from DC to the farm. But uh, for the most part, I like to get back as, as often as I can. You know, like, like I mentioned before, I, 
I still play fantasy football and basketball and baseball with all the fellas I grew up with. I still get back for the farm. I'm still an active member of the Sons of the American Legion in Hamlin post 111. I still like to stay connected. One of the great advantages of D.C. is to me, it's the it's the major metropolitan area closest to West Virginia that I wanted to be in. And so I'm still a drive away. It's a long drive. <laughs> it's a haul, but it's still a drive. I don't have to fly. I can, I can go to West Virginia anytime I want to. And I, I want to go to West Virginia as often as I can. Yeah, and I, I, I was going to ask just in proximity, uh, how how long does it take you to get back to the farm? And and just tell I know I've kind of heard and read and, and talked to Will about. But tell me again what what actually happens on the farm, what you're kind of in control of there. So I am uh, I was the only child of an only child. And my uh, my dad passed away quite a few years ago. Uh, God rest his soul. We, we celebrated him on Father's Day. Um, and so w- when my grandmother passed away, I-, I was the sole inheritor of Burns Farm. And uh, Burns Farm, when I was growing up, was a tobacco operation. My grandfather ran Burley Tobacco out of there, and we sold to Dykes Tobacco Warehouse in Moorhead, Kentucky. Is actually where we go every year. <laughs> we sold mostly for chewing tobacco is what we was raising. But then when the tobacco industry collapsed, of course, uh, the farm had to make a transition. And so we transitioned into beef cattle. Uh, we'd always run a few head and we run a couple more now. We don't. It's not a big operation by any means. We run at max about 40 head of, uh, of Hereford beef cattle. And that makes us about enough money to pay the property taxes every year. It's not, a, it's not a profitable operation by any means, but it's important because our family's been out there in the farm since 1847. You know, we're, we're a century farm. We've been in operation for, for more than a hundred years. And it's important to me to keep it in operation for as long as possible. I, it's, it's really been illuminated for me because I live here in D.C. And, and at one time, D.C. was surrounded by farmland. I don't know if people realize it, but Tyson's Corner, which is probably the most famous mall in the world, was once a very beautiful apple orchard. And Montgomery County and Loudoun County, uh, Maryland and, D- and Virginia have just been essentially swamped by little boxes on the hillside. And all those beautiful old farms are now just housing developments. And I, it makes it even more important to me for Burns Farm to continue to be a working farm. And, and I've been so blessed that that my grandfather in the late seventies brought out, brought out this guy, Ronnie Quintrell, who's like an uncle to me, a, a family member to me. He's always been so good to me and is, was a part of my raising and still is. And, and Ronnie's been working the farm. He does the day-to-day operations. He feeds the cattle, he tends the hay and fixes the fences. And he's the reason that when my grandmother passed and I was here obviously working in DC, that I've been able to keep the farm going. I, I didn't have to sell. I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to make that sacrifice. I know so many people have to make and it. I, I know that's painful and I feel for him because it would, it would tear it a piece of my soul to lose Burns Farm. So I, yeah. I've been very blessed that, that Ronnie's been there. And, and so, yeah, we, we continue the operations. I manage it and, uh, and Ronnie does the day to day and, and we'll see what comes of it. We're, we're, we're coming into the 2020s hot. So, so let's see what we can do. Your, your love for West Virginia, your love for Burns Farm, your love for App, App, Appalachia obviously exudes in, you know, everything you do. But I'm, a, I'm away from Appalachia, too, and, and I always try to find ways that I could, can get back, to give back, to, to do what I can, to, to be a part of the area where I, where I call home. And, and, you know, I know you've, d- you've done some things aside from the farm in regards to affordable housing in West Virginia uh, and other things. You want to talk about that a little bit of why it's important for you to be a part, still be a part of Appalachia and, and give back and, and do the things that you're doing? Yeah, it's it's always been important to me because it's, it's a part of me. And I, I know that's an, an overused cliche and a trope or whatever that, that your home or where you're from is a part of you, but it literally is. I mean, I, I feel it and I, I feel a connection to the people where I'm from 
harder than I've ever felt any connection to anybody. And I, it, it matters to me. And it's why I've, I've done things like, yeah, we, my wife and I founded a little nonprofit to provide affordable housing in the community I'm from. And we try to stay connected as much as we can. I mean, as much as you possibly can live in elsewhere. And, and that said, I mean, we, we both think about West Virginia every day and it's, it's hard not to, you know, it's hard not to think about, about where you're from and the place you love. My, my wife's also from West Virginia. She's from Parkersburg. Uh, her dad and mom immigrated from St. Louis uh, so that her dad could work at the Washington Works Factory in DuPont. There are a lot of those stories in West Virginia, folks who came for, which is wild to think now because we think of it as a, an economically depressed place. But there are a lot of people who came to West Virginia looking for a better life and got a better life. I've obviously seen Dark Water and it's a, it's a rough movie to watch. But DuPont did a lot of good for a lot of people in West Virginia. So I, it, as with most things in Appalachia, it's, uh, you got to take the good with the bad and the bad with the good. Yeah, you do all that work in both places. But in, in regards to your documentary work, your film work in D.C., I know the first film you did, I mentioned it, what was a film about independent pro wrestling in D.C. Just why did you decide, I know you were in school at the time, but why did you decide to make that film about D.C. when I know you have some upcoming projects in West Virginia and you want to focus on West Virginia, but what made you decide to make that first film in D.C.? So I'll say this, you know, even though we, we made the film in D.C., the film's about wrestling. And there's, there's a reason that that film's about wrestling, and it has nothing to do with D.C. <laughs> that film's about wrestling because growing up, I was a pretty devout fan of the Four Horsemen. I, 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 I still think Ric Flair is one of the premier athletes in the history of the American uh, athletic, uh, uh, essentially, uh, timeline. So, so I'm a big fan and, and grew up a huge fan. I mean, I loved wrestling. I, I've even got a a pretty ratchet little four horseman tattoo on my back. I, I wish the listeners could see it because it is, yeah, really it is busted and ratchet. I got it when I was real young, but I got it because I loved wrestling. And, and that's the reason we made the movie about, about one fall here in DC because DC had this huge span of time between when only WWE would come here. Like you didn't have any like independence that would come through. And I, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up in Appalachia where you got to see independent wrestling in the gym every year. And I grew up with this guy, Roger Smith's kids and Roger was an independent wrestler on the circuit. And so like knowing a guy, I mean, he went by dirty roads and my dad knew dirty roads I and mean, it wasn't dusty, but that didn't matter to me. He was just as famous as dusty to me. Like <laughs> dirty roads was just as cool. So so to me, I, I got a love for it. And yeah, that's what really inspired me to want to work on that movie was because my love of wrestling never never subsided. And I, I love that independent wrestling is having a rebirth in America right now. It makes so much sense. I, I mean, mean, it may have a lot to do with you. I'm just saying. I, I hope we had a little bit to do with it. I, I, I think just wrestling is like drugs. It sells itself. You know what I mean? It's, it's wonderful. It's a good thing. And I, and I think it, it works so much because – also in rural America, there's a dearth of theater. You know what I mean? Like there's not a lot of theater. If you want theater, you're going to get it at the church or you're going to get it at the high school gym for wrestling. And so, yeah. so I love that. If it's, if it's bringing art and, and, and something to experience and that connection to, you know, something fun. I mean, is there anything better than being entertained? And is there anything better? I mean, there's my, my wife's favorite movie. Of course, her parents are from St. Louis. Her favorite movie is Meet Me in St. Louis. And there's a line in Meet Me in St. Louis where Judy Garland is talking about how wonderful it is that the World's Fair is in St. Louis because she didn't have to take a train. She didn't have to get a hotel. She's right there in her own hometown. And that's what's special about independent wrestling is that, good Lord, if it comes to the high school gym next to you, you get to go see something special right there where you live. I'm so glad that I feel like there was a time in my life and I, I'm sure everybody goes through this, right. That you, you start to, 
you start to define yourself by what you don't like rather than what you do like. And, and at that point, I think I kind of like tried to push away wrestling because I was like, oh, God, like people are going to judge me. <laughs> They're going to judge me for liking this. <laughs> but I feel like I've at least come to the point now where I can say, you know, I can start to appreciate. Yeah, you got to like the things you like and you got to define yourself by the things you like. And that's all right. And that's who makes you who you are. I like wrestling. So. And I imagine that has something to do with with what you have coming up. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit, but I know a lot of your focus now is in West Virginia, even though you're you're still living in, in D.C. For sure. I mean, there's an artistic truism that if you want to write, you have to write what you know. Right. And so for me, I know Appalachia and that's why, yeah, I've got a. I'm, I'm working on uh, right now. I work for a place called the Cheshire Foundation here in D.C. And it's a uh, it's a it's a little independent film house. And it's it's run by this filmmaker, Aviva Kempner. And she has dedicated her whole career to telling kind of underknown stories of Jewish heroes in America. And that's that's what she knows. And it's what she loves. And she's been successful because she's she's telling stories that she knows and she loves. And so she's inspired me. And I, I'm founding my own little nonprofit called Yancey Season. And we're going to work on essentially rebranding West Virginia. That, that's really my focus at this point in time. And, and so the, 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 the few films I have in production are all focused on Appalachia because Appalachia is what I know. And it's focused specifically on West Virginia because I'm trying to, I'm trying to do what I know. You know, I'm trying to, you know, they always say, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. And I can, I can safely say as somebody who prosecuted ethics violations for the District of Columbia, <laughs> if you are doing what you don't love, you are sure as hell working every day of your life. So, so yeah, and I, I did that for a few years and realized it wasn't a real good time. So, so at this point, yeah, I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to put together some projects uh, about things that I love. And, and West Virginia is one of those things I love. And I, I think I want to tell stories about West Virginia that people aren't telling. I mean, one of the projects we're working on is about this author – from Milton, West Virginia, who got a bunch of acclaim in the, in the late 70s, 80s, uh, and then passed away, obviously, way earlier than he should have. His name's Brees Pancake, and, and I'd never heard of him. I, I grew up, like I said, in Coon Creek, West Virginia, which is about 10 minutes from Milton, West Virginia, and that's where he's from. And a couple of years ago, this guy that I had, uh, I'd done a little stand-up with him, and we just kind of hung out, and he was just this guy I'm so lucky to know. And he, he texted me one day, and he said, I'm reading the Paris Literature Review. And that's first that stopped me in my tracks because I was like, I don't know anybody that reads the Paris Literature Review, but I'm glad he does. I'm glad he does. And he says, I'm reading about this guy, Brees Pancake. And he's from Milton, West Virginia. Aren't you from around there? I was like, I am. I, I've never heard of him. And so he went on to explain who he was and how he's got this beloved book of short stories that's essentially considered by many to be the best representation of Appalachia and what life in Appalachia is really like, that he captures the tone of Appalachia, he captures the people, he, many people consider better than anybody else ever has. And I'd never heard of this guy, like, and, and that, that to me was just amazing. I mean, that there are so many great stories in West Virginia that you don't hear. I mean, you only ever hear about the stereotypes. And I understand that. I mean, stereotypes exist for a reason, that they don't just appear out of thin air. I mean, I, I'm from Lincoln County, and Lincoln County has the highest neonatal abstinence rate in all of America. For lay people, that means more babies are born in Lincoln County addicted to drugs than anywhere else in America. And that's that's the truth about Lincoln County. I mean, that's you can't candy coat it, but that's not all Lincoln County is. I'm also from, I also went to the high school, Hamlin High School, where Charles Yeager graduated. I mean, the first guy to break the sound barrier went to the high school that I went to. And that's to me, is an amazing story. And we, we do somewhat of a good job of telling his story. But we still don't even do a great job of telling his story. I, my, my high school was recently, uh, well, not recently, it's about 10 years ago, was was consolidated. And we were when we were consolidated, you know, there's a lot of chatter about what the new mascot was going to be. 
And everybody thought it obvious because Chuck Yeager is obviously our, our most, you know, he's, he's an American hero and he's from our county. And we thought, oh, well, we'll be the Jets or the Aviators or something. Nope, we're the Panthers. <laughs> we're the Panthers. I, I don't know if that ties back to like this, you know, don't get above your raisins or whatever, but, <laughs> but I, I, don't, I don't think that false humility or that false modesty is doing, us any, doing any of us any good. Like, let's, let's celebrate the fact that Charles Jager's from where we're from. Good Lord, he's from Upsize. That's amazing. I mean, he is a bona fide American hero from Upsize and Myra. To me, that's, that's amazing. You know, we've talked about some other other thing projects you have in the works. One thing that kind of stood out to me is that a lot of the stuff that you have that you're working on in West Virginia kind of deals with or points out the diversity in West Virginia. You know, people think of Appalachia, they think of us all thinking the same, this white monolithic culture that think the same, we do the same things, we act the same, but Really, that's not the case. You know, Appalachia is a very, Neil and I have spoken about this before, but it's a very diverse place. And I noticed a lot of your work kind of points that out. Was that, is that something important to you or, or something that you wanted to show? It's, it's of the utmost importance to me. I mean, when I talk about wanting to rebrand West Virginia, that's part of it. Like, yeah, I'm tired of us being thought of as this, like you said, a monolith of poor white people. That is not all West Virginia is. Yes, we, we do have a poor white population, but we have so many different people in West Virginia who've done amazing things. I often talk to my, my buddies about like how amazing it is that coming out of high school, we knew about every fact and figure about Don Knotts. And I, I love the Andy Griffith show and I watched a lot of Three's Company, but I don't know that Don Knotts is the, is the person I should have been learning about in West Virginia history when I learned nothing about, I learned nothing about Katherine Johnson, who until Hidden Figures, we had no idea. She went to West Virginia State. She got us to space. And I, I'm learning in high school about Don Knotts, who, who worked with Andy and Mayberry, and that's great. But good Lord, it would have been nice to learn about Katherine Johnson as well. It would have been nice to learn about, I mean, it would have been nice to learn about Carter Woodson. I mean, the, the father of black history in America is from West Virginia. And we don't talk about that. <laughs> we, we, we don't seem to celebrate that like we ought to be. I mean, his, his sister, Carter Woodson's sister, wrote this beautiful book of poetry, and she wrote it while she was going from coal camp to coal camp on the Guyandot River. The Guyandot runs through Lincoln County. And I had never heard of these people until I got out and, and started seeing the world. And I, again, I don't know if that ties back to, you know, this false humility or false modesty, but we have so much to celebrate. And I mean, I'm sure it also ties to some, some unfortunate things like racism and, and things like that, which are still prevalent in culture. But, but I think we have an opportunity to, to show that our culture is so much bigger than that. And I, I want to be a part of that show in it. I mean, I, I want to tell those stories that exist in West Virginia that people need to be hearing. I mean, I mean, good Lord, poor old Bill Weathers. I mean, nobody knew he was from West Virginia until he died. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> ain't no sunshine until he was gone. And that sunshine was from West Virginia. So, yeah, I, I, I'm all about that. I'm all about highlighting all the amazing people that come out of West Virginia, be they, you know, whatever creed, color, religion they are. I mean, we are a treasure trove of people as West Virginians and Appalachians in general. And, and we need to be hyping ourselves. We need to start being Chuck D's uh, flavor Flav. We got to be flavor Flav. Yeah. Like, like we got to look at Appalachia, like it is Chuck D and we got to hype him. We got to hype him. So, so I'm to, about it. To that point, And we've talked about this too, but right across the river, you know, Eastern Kentucky it, it has a rich cultural heritage in regards to music. And, and, and lately, you know, Tyler Childers has come, has come out of Appalachia, Eastern Kentucky, Chris Stapleton, we just have a number of talented people and, and it's it's really becoming main, mainstream. Uh, do, you, do you think that 
Appalachia is kind of becoming cool, even though we're still stereotyped. You, th- you think you think we're c- becoming cool, or always have been? And people are just now starting to realize it. Oh well, no doubt we've always been cool. I, I won't even go there. Obviously, we've always been. But yes, uh, it is definitely becoming a thing that people are into. I, the the last concert that we went to before the pandemic started was Tyler Childers at the Anthem here in D.C., which is the the nine thirty clubs new big big venue that seats about five thousand people and. And we were in there and, and watching Tyler Childers. And obviously it's a crowd full of Washingtonians and people from the area. It's not a, not a crowd of Eastern Kentucky folks or a crowd of West Virginia folks. And when Tyler comes to line, especially a feller from Eastern Kentucky, and every single head in those 5,000 people are screaming it. Yeah, I, I think it's it's starting to become part of the zeitgeist. And, that, you know, it's amazing. I mean, Eastern Kentucky has their own country music highway because y'all have so many people. Like, I, I, I'm very jealous as a West Virginian of the the embarrassment of riches that you all have that you have Winona Judd and, and all the Judds and you have Ricky Skaggs and you have Tyler and you have Sturgill and you have and even though I Sturgill I might have some issues with but that's all right I still like him a lot I still think Madam Modern sounds great album but but yeah y'all have Chris Stapleton I mean West Virginia has Brad Paisley which we are very thankful for shout to Wheeling we are very thankful for that shout to Moundsville High School pre- precisely uh and, and Jimmy Dickens that's about all we got and, and uh, you know we, you can't really start a highway with two people so so yeah I, I'm I'm jealous and I I have a lot of theories of why that may be I, I do wonder if if Kentucky benefits from the fact that you know there obviously there are a lot of states that make up Appalachia there's only one state that's all Appalachia and that's West Virginia and I, I wonder if I wonder if that's not a detriment to us you know I it's a benefit in a lot of ways. I'm proud that we are we are the one state that is 100% Appalachia. But well, but I wonder if it wouldn't help if we had a Louisville or a Lexington or a, even a Cincinnati. Yeah, I can see that. Well, I was talking to Neil the other day. I, I actually sent him this this song I, I heard of this up and coming rap artist coming out of West Virginia. <laughs> nice. Hey, that's a third. That's a third stop on our on our country music high, or our music highway. If we get it, let's. What is he like? Is he good? You're talking about diversity. His name's David Morris. I don't. I don't know if we can play it. Think we can. I think we can make an argument that we can play it under fair use because we're providing commentary on it. We're talking about music coming out of Appalachia. We're not trying to be XM Sirius Satellite Radio. We're providing commentary. So that's fair use. We can play it. Shout out to my country folk, the working class, the little guy. Some of us don't want to be famous. We want a simple life, a healthy and a happy family. We just want to get it right. A house and a steady job and a cold beer on a Friday night. I got the red, white, and American blues. I'm in hand-me-down Levi's and cowboy boots. I've been lied to my whole life. Now I'm in search of the truth. And my Cherokee doing 90 on my Corporal Avenue. I, just I like it. I like it. I'd listen to more of it. I'm about it. I'm about it. I mean, we need somebody. We ain't, we ain't got no Jack Harlow. Shit, I'm not even going to go back. We don't even have Nappy Roots from 2002. We don't have that. I mean, and by the way, yeah, Nappy Roots, how great were they? I don't know where they are now, but man, I was a big fan. Po folks, I love it. I love the people making hip hop in West Virginia. I, I, I think that's a, a great thing. I I mean, this is not personally, but like the, the evolution of my musical tastes, like I mean, I, I love country music, obviously, because I think country music speaks to the Appalachian experience. Of course, you love country music because it speaks to your experience. But I, I think there was a time in the late 90s where I love Garth Brooks. I'm an Appalachian. Obviously, I love Garth Brooks. But but Garth Brooks speaks to the Western experience. You know what I mean? He does. He speaks to the Oklahoma experience. He doesn't speak to the Appalachian experience so much. So I think at that time when Garth got big, you know, me and a lot of my friends drifted towards I mean, hip hop drifted towards Wu-Tang Clan and Biggie because they were talking about the struggle and we could identify with that. I mean, I, 
I can remember being at the Barber Apartments, which was the public housing in Hamlin that my best friend Jeremy lived in, and us standing in his bedroom because we'd just gotten a copy of Ready to Die, uh, Notorious Big's debut album, in my opinion, the greatest hip-hop album ever made. And I remember us standing there learning word for word, every word to the what. And Jeremy did the the, the Method Man part, and I did the big part. And, it, you know, we, we're we 11-year-old rural Appalachians standing there just loving it, loving it, because it spoke to us. And I, yeah, I'm telling I, you, I hope similarities are there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I think it's why I'm so happy for a guy like Tyler Childers, because we're getting back to country music, speaking to the experience. Like we need it to do that. I mean, and I, I love that hip hop's coming out, out of Appalachia now, because we need Appalachian hip hop to speak to the experience as well. His album, Straight Appalachian. Just just to get back to your work a little bit, I, I heard, and, and you know what we were talking about, Appalachia becoming cool. I read a quote quote the other day from the filmmaker Nicole Regal. She just came out with the film Holler. It's brand new. You know, it's about her life in Appalachia, Ohio. She had a quote. She, I guess her backstory is out of high school, out of college, she moved to L.A., became a filmmaker. But she had a quote um, that I read. It said, I didn't view Appalachia as a place where I could be a film director, yet I was only really successful because I went back to Appalachia to make this film. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you kind of- I love it. I love it, obviously. I mean, especially considering that West Virginia continues to experience, you know, population decline. We're about to lose a congressional seat because of it. And, and I, I get why she's saying that. I mean, I, I feel it myself. Like I, 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 I gravitate towards West Virginia because like I said before, you know, you write what you know. And I think you have success when you, when you make things and you focus on things that you know. And I think that's what she's saying that, you know, she was able to, to get back to what she knew and that created the success she was looking for in her life. And I, yeah, I, I get it. I, I, I'm envious and I want to emulate it. I'm, I'm, I'm about that because, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, you, you can have a level of success elsewhere. And I, I certainly understand why people move to cities. I, I, I get it, obviously, as somebody who's lived in one for a very long time now. Like cities are special because uh, there's a level of anonymity. You can hide in the city. You know, there's there, there's no doing that in a small town. There's no doing that in rural America. In rural America, there is no anonymity like there's. Everybody knows what you're doing. Everybody knows what you're up to. Everybody knows your cousins. Everybody knows who you're dating. Everybody knows who you're married to. Everybody knows, you know, whatever. Everybody knows what you're eating for breakfast. I always use this as a metaphor. You know, if everybody knows what you're eating for breakfast, you better be making sure you're eating right. And so that that's how rural America is. And uh, urban America is not the same way. You know, you, you can kind of hide. And, and there's also the difference between rural and urban America is that, like, we've been here for a little while. And I, I think for, for my wife, and I, you know, between like 25 and 35, we felt like we owned Washington, D.C. Like it was our city. Like we were we were we were Washingtonians for a moment. But there's a transience to the city like cities are ever evolving. And that's what's beautiful about them. It's what makes them special. It's why kids every year want to come move to the city because it, they can make it their own. And it is always changing. But there's something special also about the country and its permanence. Like I, I love the fact that in some ways the country doesn't change like that. Like there's always that you're always home there. You, you always know the people, the people always know you. There's always that connection to place. And, and I, I like that it doesn't have to reinvent itself because it's already wonderful. I, to me, that, that makes it so special. And so I can see why to seek success in your art or your profession or whatever, if you'd want to get back to that, because there's something to me about that accountability that you get from everybody being in your business, which I think people look as a bad thing, but I think it's a good thing. Like, I think it provides a level of accountability that you need and so that helps you to succeed. And then that that permanence, that infinity connection to a place and a people 
that just gives you a, I mean, you're summoning the power of Grayskull. I mean, there's something about it. Like it's, it's special. I'm still living in the middle of it, Yancy. It's special on most days. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I get that too. I mean, perspective is everything, obviously. Yeah. Context and perspective is everything. And, and perhaps we're not great at nuance. Yancy, you know, we, we talked about tradition and, and uh, how strong the family ties are in Appalachia. Obviously, you live in D.C., but what does your family think about you moving to D.C.? And, and is it something that, you know, you, you still think about? Are you are you ever going to move back to West? I don't know if that's a fair question, but are you ever going to uh, think about moving back? I, I, I try to live by the mantra that we plan and God laughs because it's accurate. Like you, you can try to plan, you can try to make decisions, but you don't know what's going to come. I mean, I, I was encouraged, you know, I, like I said before, I, I, I'm lucky because my, I came, I came from a family of educators that nobody, nobody was telling me not to get above my raisins. They were dying for me to get above my raisins. So they were happy when I, when I came to law school and I know Momo would have liked me to come back and practice there in Charleston probably. And, uh, and I, in, in a way I think about it a lot, but of course I think about, practicing law anywhere ain't great so so who knows <laughs> who knows but but yeah does the itch still strike us to want to go every day but every day I mean I get a good you know I've heard in previous episodes y'all talking about you come across a bridge and you feel like you're home and there's this weight lifted off of you and you feel this feeling I and mean, I feel that feeling every time I go under the welcome to West Virginia sign wild and wonderful almost heaven I mean you feel it every time it's a weird feeling to leave it. And, and even though I, you know, there's a good feeling now when I come across the 14th street bridge coming into DC, I, I get that similar home feeling. It's not the same. You know, we are so intertwined there. You know, my mom still lives in West Virginia. Her parents still live in West Virginia. So, you know, it's, it's hard not to want to be close to your people. Uh, even though they obviously realize that we've got a good life set up here in DC. We were, we were very lucky that I was coming out of law school right as the real estate market was crashing. So we were able to, we were able to buy a house in DC. We own a house in a nice neighborhood. It wasn't great when we bought it, but it's a great neighborhood now. And, and, you know, we've got a pretty nice little life established, but still, still it calls to us. And I, I'm sure it calls to everybody. I, I, I talked about, I talk about this to one of my best friends from high school, her name's Jenny Bogus, And, and she's a women's basketball coach. And she was, she was working for Penn state last year. She worked for Marquette before as an assistant. And, and over the summer she was hired as Monmouth's head coach. She's living the dream. Like she's, she's one of the greatest to ever come out of Lincoln County and we're proud of her, but even her, you know, at, at the level she's reached, she still thinks about Hamlin. She still thinks about the place she grew up. She still thinks about the town walking down to the basketball court. I mean, I love to hear her talk about the most important thing in her life was getting access to the gym was having keys to the gym to go in and shoot and, obviously changed her life to be able to walk down from her house in town. But, you know, even where she is now, you know, she's living on the Jersey shore, which is a pretty awesome place. Monmouth is a real cool you. And I'm sure she'll be, you know, somebody somewhere bigger probably in the future, or who knows, she might take Monmouth to the heights they've never been to, but, but even she's still thinking about it. And so I think everybody who leaves thinks about it. You know, we are the Will and I, obviously you're still there, Neil, but Will and I are part of the vast Appalachian diaspora, you know, and, and it's a, it's a part of all of us. And I think it always will be. Well, to that point, I know, I know, uh, I, Will and I talked about this before, kind of routines that you have when you go back. Uh, so, what's tell the tell the listeners? Is there something, some type of routine that when you drive that trek, you talk about getting into Morgantown and how awesome it is to have that feeling, but then you still got like three more hours before you get to the farm. Yep. So every time you go to the farm, is there is there some type of routine that you have that you that that you is your go-to as soon as you come home, as soon as you come to the place that you that, that you just long for, I guess, all the time. Is there is there a certain routine you have when you get there? 
Uh, yeah, I definitely have a ritual. So I, yeah, I come through Morgantown on 79 and then I bust on the, uh, on the 79 all the way down until you get to Charleston and get on 64 and 64 takes me to Hurricane. And I get yeah. off at the Hurricane exit, obviously Hurricane, West Virginia, not Hurricane for, for all the <laughs> listeners out there who aren't familiar. Uh, but I come through Hurricane and I make my way down to Sycamore Road and and from Sycamore, I take Panther Branch. From Panther Branch, I take Coon Creek Road, and, and I get to Burns Farm. But but right there at the mouth of Sycamore, when I'm coming off, there's a little spot called JJJ's. And if, if you're in the know, they call it the Triple J's. Uh, <laughs> it's a little spot I stop at every single time, and I get a 22. I get a cold 22 <laughs> of, of whatever looks frosty that day. And uh, and I crack it open. I, I pour one out for my dad, and I pour one out for my Uncle Phil, and I pour one out for my mom and Papa, and, and, I, and I make my way down to the farm that way. And it's... I've been doing it for as long as I can remember. I don't imagine I'll ever not do it. I'm sure the people that JJJ's, you, you, you see a comfortable face as soon as you walk through the door, you know. <laughs> very very much so. Very much so. Yes. Yes. No pepperoni roll. Oh, the pepperoni roll. I, yeah. I, I would say this. I, I don't come from either. You know, Lincoln County is neither a, we have one coal mine that used to be an operation Hobat, but we're not a mining community by any means. And, and we don't have a large Italian population either. So we, I didn't grow up with the pepperoni roll. It wasn't introduced to me until I got to Morgantown. I'm glad that it's become the West Virginia, the West Virginia food of choice for folks that, that we're identifying ourselves by. And it's now ubiquitous throughout the state, but it wasn't for me growing up. So for me, when I think West Virginia food, I don't think one thing. I think a Tudor's biscuit world, <laughs> and it is it is the height of culinary excellence. If you ask me, there is nothing better. So like, you know, I'll come in. I usually come in at night. I'll get my twenty two on the way in. I'll get some rest. I'll get up the next morning, and the first place I'm gonna go is the Tudor's biscuit world in Hamlin. And I'm gonna go in, and I'm gonna order a Mountaineer, and I'm gonna order a Mountaineer with sausage instead of country ham. And she's gonna look at me, and she's gonna go, "Honey." that's a thundering herd. And I'm going to say, sweetie, I appreciate the input, but I would still like a mountaineer with sausage instead of country ham. <laughs> and I have it and it's, it's wonderful. It's it, you know, your home, you know, your home. Yeah. So, when did farm to table become cool? I mean, you move to the city, they start doing farm to table. I grew up from farm to table. It was like, it was, it's an everyday thing. I don't know why it's so cool now. Yeah, it definitely, it got back into the culture, which is great because, you know, I was raised by my grandparents for, for somewhat and, and they were farm to table folks, obviously. They, they, they grew up during the depression of World War II and rationing. And, and so their whole lives, they ate fresh vegetables. I mean, soup beans, and cornbread and mush. I mean, that's, that was everything. And, and, and cucumber and tomato salad, and you know what I mean? Like with a little bit of vinegar and sugar in it. Like that was everything to my grandparents. And then my dad's generation, like almost started to look down on that. Like that was what poor people did. Poor people had a garden. Poor people ate their own vegetables. You know what I mean? Poor people did that. And so if you had some money, you ate at McDonald's, <laughs> which of course is crazy to think about in retrospect. <laughs> but but I do think that that's kind of what people thought. And so so I'm so happy to see it come back in. I, I do think that there are people of our generation and, and people even younger than us who are starting to embrace having gardens again and, and that life because it's it's such a beautiful life. And I'm, I'm glad that there are people like Mike Costello at, at Lost Creek Farm in West Virginia down outside of Fairmont, who who was highlighted by Anthony Bourdain. I mean, he was on an episode of, of Anthony Bourdain, like, because farm to table has become so special. And and I'm so glad those people are out there touting how great it is that, yeah, you grow a garden. That is, there, is there anything more Appalachian than growing a garden? I love it. We, uh, we know all about that down here. We got my 11 year old, he's 11 now. He had a garden last year and this year he decided, uh, He's wanted to go one step further. So I got six chickens in the backyard right now. So nice. They fighting chickens? 
<laughs> no, they're layers. <laughs> oh, oh, I hate to hear that. I said when there's bantams. Well, you know, that's all right. That's all right. I, I, I got them on a leash. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I, I can remember the first time I took my wife back to back to see my buddy Brian Aggins, who lives up Second Fork of Big Creek in Mud River, and and it's it's a hike. You know, you the Second Fork, the road is the creek itself. So you're just driving up the creek bed, and that is the road itself. And as you go up, you pass all these houses, and at the edge of all the houses, there are chickens on chains. And I just remember my wife looking at me like, "What in the hell is this? This is the weirdest thing I've ever seen." I was like, "Baby, I'm fighting chickens. You you got to keep them on chains. They're gonna kill each other." No, I don't have those in DC. Dad, they do not. They do not. Although I will say this, I'm I'm reading. Uh, Coach John Thompson, who won a national championship at Georgetown. Yeah. I'm reading his autobiography right now, and he talks about when he was a little kid, they raised chickens over in Anacostia in their front yard. Oh, so wow. it, it was a part of the culture here as well. I mean – Similarities. Yep, yep, exactly. Gets back to – yeah, I think there's more that more that unites us than divides us. I, I just kind of want to ask this. You've obviously answered this throughout the whole episode, but this is something we also ask all our guests. You know, what? What? where do you call home – You've already talked about <laughs> what makes it unique. Why, why do you consider it home and, and will it always be home to you? I mean, home to me is West Virginia, more specifically Lincoln County, more specifically Hamlin, more specifically Route 34, more specifically Coon Creek Road, and most specifically Burns Farm. That is home. That is home. So it, it'll always be, I mean, yeah, there's a connection to the place because my people have been there for so long. I mean, Burns Farm's been there since 1847, but it's also because... I mean, the, the place does raise you. I mean, it, I mean, they say it takes a village to raise a child, and that, that is the truth. I mean, I was raised by a village on Coon Creek. I mean, my best friend Maria's parents, Dalen Dreamer, helped to raise me. My Ronnie, who managed our farm, him and Judy. God, Judy made the best macaroni. I still taste Judy's macaroni salad. Like, if I go to, like, a 4th of July picnic, Judy ain't there. It don't matter. I still taste her macaroni salad because it's the best I've ever had. I mean, all these people, Shirley and Larry up the road and Shirley, all these people that help to contribute to who you are as a person. And, I, you know, how could you ever lose a feeling for home for that? I mean, I mean, I got to have an entire community care for my well-being, care for who I was, and still cares about me. I mean, I, mean, I still love driving Coon Creek on a nice day when people are out on their porches and just stopping to say hello to people like that's everybody waves at you oh that's right yeah everybody knows everybody everybody calls you friend that's the truth yeah. but it's the yeah. truth and that, I think uh <laughs> you think, you know, but to that point you think that people from you know if you want to call it underrepresented areas you think they have more of a connection to home than people in bigger cities obviously but I, I just feel like coming where we're from there, there's you feel that connection and, and and it's throughout America. I don't know if it's rural, urban, if it's that divide, but there's just those underrepresented or plain old forgotten areas that they seem to have that stronger connection to home. Yeah, I definitely think it's it's a way we choose to identify ourselves off. For us, the struggle is something that we're so proud of. You know what I mean? Like for, for most Appalachians that I've ever met, the struggle is something they're so proud of. I it was a great uh there's a great meme going around a, a few weeks ago about, I forget what her name was. She's a, she's a Twitter personality. I'll, I'll update, I'll update the, the blog post when y'all put it up on Instagram. I'll, I'll name who she was or whatever. But, but she was saying, now I'm getting tired of all these people that went to Charleston Catholic talking about the Appalachian experience. <laughs> and I was, I was like, yeah, it kind of hit home for me because, yeah, there, there, is, there is something to be said about the struggle and how you, 
you know, if, if, if things weren't the best, you, you use it as something that kind of is your superpower, you know what I mean? And I, I think people, I think people do that everywhere. I, I definitely see people here in DC who, who grew up in neighborhoods, neighborhoods that aren't considered the best neighborhoods. They rep their neighborhood hard. Like I love people who rep Trinidad, DC so hard and love Trinidad so much. And the reason they love it so much is because I'm sure at some point somebody has said something poor about Trinidad to them and it, they took offense to it. And they said, well, you know what I'm going to do to respond to that? I'm going to hype Trinidad as hard as I can. And I think that's certainly where it came to me from West Virginia and where so many people in West Virginia and Appalachia in general come from it is that you're, you're faced with, you know, somebody putting it down or, or somebody you know, just elevating the stereotype and not elevating the reality. And you say to yourself, well, what do I do about that? And the best thing you can do about it is own it, you know, is own it as your own thing. And that's what I'm all about. So I hope everybody that's underrepresented or is in a situation where it's maybe not the best. I mean, nothing against people who, you know, who define themselves by their swim and racket club. I'm sure that is a delightful life. And I'm sure to do that is a good thing. But but if you want to define yourself by the country and you want to define yourself by the struggle, then that's a cool thing too. And or if you want to define yourself by urban America and the block and the struggle, then that's a cool thing too. So I, I just hope people own their situation and love it because, you know, we're all here. We're all together. We might as well enjoy it. We definitely appreciate you being on the show. I wanted our listeners to let them know a little bit about your background, but also to keep their eyes, keep their ears open about what you have coming up, especially about Appalachia and all the work you're doing. I appreciate it. I, yeah, the, the one thing I'll give a shout out is the project I'm working on right now, like I said, for the Cheshire Foundation. We're making a movie called Imagining the Indian, which is about the fight against Native American mascotting. And it's about yet another underrepresented people who are who are thought of who are thought of by, by most Americans, a lot of Americans, at least as an extinct people and, and, a, and a people who no longer exist because all we've ever known of them our high school football team mascots and pro football team mascots and hockey mascots and, and the Atlanta baseball team and, and the Kansas city football team and the Chicago hockey team, which still exist. And, and so we're pretty proud of that. And we're, we're wrapping uh, principal photography on that and hope it comes out by the end of the year. And, and we look forward to that coming out because it's just such a, a wild issue to think about native Americans as a living people here in America. And I don't think we do that very often. So I'm looking forward to that. And then, yeah, on down the road, I, like I said, I'm, I'm establishing my own little nonprofit. I'm, I'm looking forward to making a, a little film, hopefully, about there's a, a friend of mine that I grew up with, uh, and he's, he's a church planter in Milton, and uh, he's planted a couple churches there. And, and one of the things his church focuses on, which is really what drew my attention to it, is that instead of getting into the, the pro-life, pro-choice debate, which is just rife with just unpleasantness and no one ever solves anything his church has taken it upon themselves to start adopting kids and and that's their focus and, and you know western has a huge backlog of uh, of kids in, in the system and and his church has made it a, a real concerted effort to not talk about you know platitudes of what's right and wrong when it comes to you know pro-life versus pro-choice whatever they don't care their hands off of that and they're focusing on the fact that their kids right now will be took care of and they're they're trying to take care of them so i, I love that story i'd love to be able to tell that story uh, another story that I'm, I'm hoping to be able to tell about this, uh, there's a place called Lost River in West Virginia out in Hardy County, which is pretty close to here in D.C. And, and back in 1983, these guys uh, found this place called the Lost River Guest House. They found it as a, a place where, where gay travelers and tourists could go and be safe and have a good time and know that they could enjoy the country without be having to worry about anything. And it became this little enclave. And the guys ended up expanding the guest house into a full hotel, like little spot, and eventually founded a real estate company. And now there's an entire community there that was just 
essentially advertised like they advertised in the, the Washington Blade, which is DC's gay po uh, gay publication, and they adver advertised in Out Baltimore, which is Baltimore's gay population gay publication, and they got this community to come to Hardy County, West Virginia. Now there's this thriving community, and there are no problems, and nobody talks about it. It reminds me of Schitt's Creek, like that. They always talk about what's what's special about Schitt's Creek is that they don't they don't talk about homophobia like they just act like it's not a thing. And that's exactly what Lost River is like. Nobody's talking about like it's not a thing. It's just it's what it is. And it, I love that. That it is what it is. There's no negative to it. It's just it's just this awesome community in West Virginia. And, and you wouldn't know it, but it's in the middle of nowhere. And it's it's pretty cool. So. So, yeah, stories like that. I hope to tell. I mean, I love stories about West Virginia. I, I, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the place. Like. Like I said, I, I love all those those little stories about people that don't get talked about. I mean, I had to watch a movie to learn about Katherine Johnson, that I had to I had to see Bill Withers die to learn about him, that I had to walk down to U Street to learn about Carter Woodson instead of learning about it in school. Like, I'd, I'd love to be a part of telling those stories because I know there are a billion of them. And I know everybody who wants to tell stories in Appalachia must feel the same way because we're an interesting place full of interesting people and I, I, we're blessed to come from there. I, I can't gas up Appalachia enough because I believe in it. I believe in it fully. How do our listeners find Yancey Burns? Where, where can we go to? So uh, so if you want to check out the movie we're working on right now, Imagining the Indian, you can go to imaginingtheindianfilm.org. Uh, if you scroll down to the bottom of the page, you'll see my bio and you'll see everybody else's bio. We're actually, one of the producers on the, the project is I grew up obviously a, a devout fan when I when I started watching Around the Horn and and Pardon the Interruption on ESPN and one of the producers on the film was Kevin Blackstone as the professor and 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 it's so cool to to be able to work with him and and get his his thoughts on the world so so you can check that out and if you want to find me you can find me on Instagram at Yancey underscore season. So go to Yancey season on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook just under Yancey William Burns. And actually that brings up a good point. Neil, are you on social media at all? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter, possibly. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I tried to find you on Instagram and Facebook today. And I thought, does this person exist? Yeah, we, de we definitely appreciate it, man. Um, and appreciate all you're doing for Appalachia. Oh, but I, I, I'm just doing what I can. I, I appreciate everybody that's doing good things for Appalachia. I'm, I'm so proud of some of the people I grew up with. Like I said about Jenny, I'm so proud of what she's doing. I'm so proud of my buddy, Eddie Austin, who runs Eddie Austin Woodworks, who's had, you know, every opportunity in the world to take his woodworking business for, for big money anywhere he'd want to go. And he said, nope, I want to raise my family on Route 34. And I'm so proud of him for doing that and, and for taking a stand. And now he's He's a superstar in the woodworking world, and he's doing it right there on Route 34, right outside of Hamlin. And, and you know, it's, oh, goodness gracious, there's so many people doing good things in Appalachia. Ty Bullock is trying to make West Charleston, Brooklyn, and I think that's amazing that somebody is is seeing the potential in a place that was, you know, cut off by the interstate at one point in time. And and because there are issues with class and race in, in America and West Virginia specifically, that the yeah, west side of Charleston was not always treated the best. And and he's trying to do some great things for there. And I'm so proud of that. And I love social media because it lets you keep up with all the cool people and all the cool things that are happening in, in Appalachia. Good Lord, there's so many of them. So I, I will end with this one thought. I will say this, you know, I think fatalism is pervasive, obviously, throughout Appalachia. That's why the, the phrase Appalachian fatalism exists. You know, I think there's a, a general thought that you can't have nothing and that nothing's ever going to be good. And But I know that there'll come a day, at least in West Virginia, where either our football team or our basketball team, the Mountaineers are going to win a national championship. And on that day, on that day, Appalachian fatalism will die because you'll never be able to say you can't have nothing ever again because you'll point to that day and you'll say, well, we have a national championship. So and, I, and that's no disrespect to our rifle team. It was a pleasure, fellas. Again, I, I, I'll thank you again for what you're doing because I, I do think that things need to be highlighted like this. I mean, I, 
I love that you're telling these stories that are so wonderful. I, I love the fairs and festivals episode. It made me so jealous of fairs and festivals. Made me want to go to the pumpkin festival back home. Made me want to, you know, go to the buckwheat pancake festival. Like I love that. I love y'all talking to old ball coaches. You know, I, there's so many cool things and, and things that make people feel good. And, and, and in Appalachia, we need more of that. Like I, I do believe in that, you know, they say, if you, you know, if you look at a vision board and I, I like to think of your all's pod as a vision board for Appalachia, you know what I mean? It's giving people an idea of the life they can be living and, and the possibilities that are there and, and how good it is already, like how good of a life they're already living. So, so I appreciate y'all doing that. Keep on, keep up good work. Thank you very much, man. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Man, Will, awesome, awesome guest in, in, in Yancey. And, you know, everybody heard who Yancey Burns is and where to find him. And I'm so happy that you had a connection with him for all of our listeners to, to be able to hear and get his insight on just, you know, everything he's involved in. And I tried to, to bring as much light back to that farming community that, that he's so much loves, but uh, I hope everybody got that from, from his words. And I know I certainly was encouraged by all the work that he does kind of in both areas of the world, but uh, thanks to you and thanks to him. So uh, I thought it was awesome. What'd you think? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. He, he, he's obviously doing some really cool work. You, you know, you can definitely see that love for Appalachia, that love for West Virginia just exudes out of him. I mean, yeah, there's no question. There's no question where home is for that guy. Absolutely. But, but yeah, it was, a, it was a great interview. Great, great to talk about some of the exciting things he's doing. And just for our listeners, definitely, like I said during the interview, keep your eyes, keep your ears peeled for Yancey Burns. He will definitely have something coming out uh, in the near future. I know. I feel like we're just on a roll here of uh, interviewing future stars. You know, we had uh, uh, my boy Richie Riley on, who everybody knows is going to be a Power 5 coach. And then – Yancey Burns, who, you know, will probably be watching his films on Netflix here soon. You know, just awesome to have uh, homegrown people uh, doing big things in the world and, and them at least giving us an opportunity to kind of to gas them up, as Yancey likes to say, which I love. I love when he said that, uh, you know, we're just trying to gas up all those all those people in outside of Appalachia now that were once on the inside of Appalachia. So awesome awesome stories from from yancey yeah love that term too there's so many people especially today that are trying to gas up appalachia yancey's just one of them but yeah there's so many stories out there you know we have limited time and limited amount of space that we can actually get people on on these episodes but we're going to try to get as many people as we can to gas up appalachia yeah and don't forget you know all the uh all you folks that find it easier to to find us on social media don't forget to send in your ideas too if if something pops in your head that you'd really like to hear about will and i one of us both of us might have a connection that we can follow through your suggestions so uh, don't be afraid to send us something yeah definitely i think that's a good way to get into the next segment of uh, Neil. You asked me last time, you kind of flipped the script, but I'll ask you if you have anything to, to talk about in the of place segment. You know, Yancey mentioned something about uh, one of the guys uh, he's working on, the, the Bruce Pancake and the, and the short stories. You know, recently I, I read a book 
by a, an author that that we both know, Carol Ocker, Miracles of the Heart. You know, Yancey was talking about lifting up those peoples from the past and and telling that guy's story, but to shed light into the the Carol Ocker book out there that she has written recently, I would recommend it to anybody that may or may not have known Carol and Jack Ocker over the years. I would just say phenomenal insight to what has happened in Coach Ocker's life over the last you know 60 plus years. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to read read any of it at all, but just a great great story, a great collection of her thoughts and her experiences throughout their life. Uh, she did a great job of uh, writing those down. It, it it meant a lot to me just to, to read it and to, to hear those stories again, even though I knew some of them. I didn't know the depths and I didn't know all the situations that have occurred in their life that have led to different different ways uh, and different pathways. Uh, just an, an awesome book, uh, an awesome collection of stories from from Miss Iker, what we always called her. But, you know, it's somebody that grew up in Kentucky, now lives in North Carolina, loves Appalachia, loves biking in Appalachia still. If any of our listeners want to read that book, you'll, you'll, hear, you'll hear all about some of those bike experiences and, and other things like that throughout Appalachia. So I hope that you'll read that. I hope that you'll get to hear Coach Iker's story. And I guarantee you, if you're not a crier, if you, you, not. you've never shed a tear, I, I'll just go ahead and say it. If Will Warren doesn't shed a tear after reading this book, I'll be shocked. And he's not a crier, if any of y'all know him. I, I barely knew he had emotion until I was 25 years old. Uh, anyway, uh, similar to uh, to Jack Iker, kind of keeps it all in. This book, man, gosh. Good luck, Will, when you read it. Good luck. No, for real, though, I think that's a, that's a excellent way. I knew she had written the book, and I actually have a copy. I haven't read it yet, but I, I think that's a great way to end the show. You know, we kind of ground ourselves in, in this podcast on place and perspective, and I think her perspective is is one of many in Appalachia. You know, that's what we're trying to do on this podcast is tell those stories and, and let people know what all Appalachia is about. Uh, to that end, you know, I'll say like I, like I always do, uh, till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong In the mountains